we've got a tremendous passage of scripture this morning, which is really encouraging to me because God's word is powerful. It doesn't go out void. So what we're going to look at today is tremendously significant, I think, for each and every life here. Uh, it's interesting, too. It's, it's a little different than a lot of what we... Paul tends to, I'm now on page three in my notes, even though I haven't read page one or two, but Paul tends to, to break his books up pretty clearly into like doctrine and practice. And this is one of those places where right in the middle of doctrine, Paul slips in a little bit of practice just to surprise you. Uh, and it's really significant, a really significant piece of, of truth about the Christian life. So... Today we're going to really put a cap on Jason's sermon last week. If you if you were here or if you've listened to the recording, you'll remember that last week was all about know, believe, and reckon. Know, believe, reckon. That's the one I want. Know, believe, reckon. So know some things, believe them, and then reckon or account or um, count them to your account. It was an accounting term. This week we're adding one word. It's a short word, just two letters. Do. So this week we'll have know, believe, reckon, and do. Lest you think it's just Jason, let me say what he says pretty much every week. Hokey smokes. Romans is exciting. Romans is tremendous. I don't care if you've known Jesus for a day or for 40 years. I think a study of the book of Romans will sharpen your faith. I hope you're following along. I hope you're reading it at home. I hope that you're studying. I hope you're ready to engage it. Uh, this is tremendously significant scripture for your life. This week our passage is pretty short. It's simple. There aren't really complicated interpretive schemes that we have to figure out. Ooh, what did he mean? Uh, pretty clear what he means when we get there. You won't be surprised, but it'll work on you. And I will tell you, it's been working on me for the past couple weeks. I hope that by the time we're through today, you will be challenged and blessed by the absolute rock-steady reality that if you know Jesus, you are right now, where you sit, free from the power of sin. Catch the nuance. That's not... You will one day be free from sin. That's, you are right now, where you sit, free from the power of sin. Of course, you can't preach a sermon without doing some review, right? So, how did we get where we are today? First, we had a remote that didn't work. Wow. It's my day for technical difficulties. I have dead batteries. Are there any AAA batteries back there, guys? I'm betting the answer is actually no. Can it be? Sorry, this is... Yeah, I already used the nothing like a well-oiled machine joke, didn't I? Thank you, sir. That's the, that's the truth. Okay. 
You guys can turn in your Bibles, right? We'll, we'll give up. It's all right. Um, so we've been working through an outline of the book of Romans, which was going to go up there, but I won't. Um, and if you remember, we started out with the law, right? First three chapters of Romans is all about all everyone being a sinner, everyone being under the law. Um, that That's the big first chunk of the book of Romans. And then we move into the gift and then the blessings. Right now we're in this section, the middle section, which is about blessings. The blessings we receive by being in Christ. Romans is a tremendously cogent argument. Some people, when they build an argument, it's kind of like they're building with matchsticks. You know, it's kind of like it's, it's a bad Lego building before your kid learns how to overlap the bricks. You just you flip one little piece and over it goes. Oh, there we go. Um, Paul doesn't build his arguments that way. Paul builds his arguments like he's using bricks, brick and mortar. I mean, he is he's putting together a solid argument. One of the dangers of a study of Paul that goes in depth the way we have every week is that it can be it can become studying a tree instead of studying a forest. And so it's really important as we talk about what we're talking about today that Paul's argument starts back in chapter 1, verse 1. The argument that you are no longer under the power of sin isn't just a statement. It's built on six chapters now of Paul explaining that the, the foundation, that everybody is under sin, then what God did, and now the blessings, the results of being right with God. We've got a lot of Romans to go. Um, I think if Jason were here, he'd say we're on about a two-year trek through Romans. That sounds long, uh, but there's a famous pastor who once took greater than 10 years to go through Romans, so we're doing pretty okay, really. I mean, two years, that's nothing. These past few weeks, we've been working through Romans 6, 1 through 14. Paul ends chapter 5 with these words. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's where we pick up. So if you would, please stand with me. We'll read God's word together. We're going to read Romans 6, 1 through 14. Let me read it to you. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And here's our passage this week. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but it, but but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts to apply this text to our lives. Help us to receive it. Help us to engage the truth of Scripture. Help us to celebrate the glorious truth that through our union with Christ, we are dead to sin. Sin has no power over us. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your victory? We are free from sin. Praise you, God. We ask for your help today as we dig into this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. You can be seated. As I... Okay. As I read this week, I uh, came across the idea, or a quote, that church discipline is 70% reactive. It's something goes wrong, and the church has to come together to deal with something going wrong. But there's this other 30% that's preventative. And I thought, ooh, I like that idea. And I would submit to you that this passage that we're studying today is squarely in that 30% preventative maintenance sort of area. We're dealing with some hard things. We're dealing with sin. I want to torpedo an objection before you have the opportunity to raise it, if I can. And it's this. Coming from the background that most of us share, where statements of faith tend to start out with creation and then man's condition, which is fallen, we're really good at Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3. We're really good at, you're under sin. Everybody's under sin. We're all sinners. Everyone's under sin. And that's true. But it changes when you, when you come to faith in Jesus. Those things are true, but they don't contravene the truth of this passage. In fact, they form the basis for this passage. This passage, the truth that we're going to explore today, is only possible for those who are in Christ. So if you're here and you're not in Christ, some of these things I'm going to say, it won't mean anything to you. But if you're in Christ, these things are true. So Paul's interjecting a little bit of application here, like we've already said. He doesn't usually do that. He usually kind of keeps things divided. But today, in verses 12 through 14 in Romans 6, we're going to get a little bit of application. So last week, we finished up talking about 
reckoning or considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this is the so what. Um, This is one of those few times where Paul doesn't say for, but a therefore would fit. This, This thought connects really strongly back to the thought before it. Consider yourself dead to sin, alive to Christ. Then let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. If you're dead to sin positionally, so if you're in Christ, you're dead to sin positionally. If Christ's redemption has been applied to your account, then in the eternal sense, you're dead to sin. Sin is not the king. But while you live on earth, sin wants to be the king. Paul does a funny thing here that writers often do. He personifies evil. He personifies sin. Sin becomes a thing. It's not just an action, it's, it's kind of, it's a person. And it's a person that wants to be the king. The, the, word, um, the word that gets translated to reign is actually just the word king in verb form. Um, ancient languages worked that way a lot. It can be a noun, it can be a verb. This is the verb form. So, to king, you know, to be the king. Sin wants to king your life. Um. Sin wants to be the king in your life right now if you know Jesus. Your job is to not let it. Don't let sin be the king of your life. To make you obey its passions. Paul tells us a little something about the way sin tries to be the king. And it does it through passions, through emotions, through uh, another translation for that word would be lust. So sin is the enemy in the analogy, and it has some weapons. It dangles things in front of you that sound pretty good, right? Lust is a word that we mostly use about sex these days, but the word that's used here isn't limited that way. Anything that that can drag you off track can fit here. So let, let me just give you a few. Food, money power, relationships, control, freedom, really anything that you can set your heart on. So a Corvette or maybe an Austin Mini, right? We were talking about our dream cars this week and Mini Coopers fit for my family, even though I'm way too big to drive a Mini Cooper. It'd be fun. Any of those things, though, can become sin's weapons to try to become the king in your life. C.S. Lewis was once famously asked, if you're wondering why the thing that bugs you the most isn't on my list, C.S. Lewis was asked once why he didn't talk about certain sins, and he said, I I really only ever talk about the ones that I struggle with. Uh, They're the easiest ones for me to identify. So if there's something that you're like, that should be on that list, those are probably the ones that I struggle with. Your list will be different. Maybe you don't struggle with food. I struggle with food a lot. Food loves to be the king of my life. That's, that is easy. But whatever it is, those, those passages through which sin becomes, tries to become the king of your life, Paul's command to you here is don't let it. 
Let not, therefore, sin reign in your mortal bodies. There's a little bit of a similar passage later in Romans. If you want to turn there, it's in Romans 13, 12 to 14. Here's what it says. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put, put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's a good scriptural list that goes everywhere from from the easy things to things like jealousy and quarreling, which, by the way, does not get enough attention in churches these days. You know, God really doesn't like quarreling either. My kids like quarreling. Y'all ever have that experience? Your kids quarrel and you hear it and you think, I'll tell you what I think. I think, is Rebecca going to go do that? Is she going to take care of it? Normally the answer is yes. Quarreling. God hates quarreling. Quarreling can be, you know what? You ever meet those people who just like to fight all the time? Sometimes they manage to get themselves into presidential elections somehow. Quarreling. God does not like quarreling. Just saying. So look, sin wants to reign. It wants to be the king in your life. And it has weapons. Anything that you can get passionate about can be a weapon for sin. Find an avid. You know what? Chances are, if you're a big Toronto Maple Leafs fan like I am, you could carry that far enough that it could be a an avenue for sin to be the king in your life. Sin wants to reign. Paul's command to us is that we not let it happen. He continues on in verse 13. And this is a challenging one, I think, and we'll talk about it. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The word present is great. It's the word, it's, it means to put in front of or put nearby, right? Just like English. But it also carries a connotation of yielding or submitting. So, you know, in a sword fight, um, in those movies that purport to be back in the olden days, do you yield? No, I won't yield. And then they fight for a while longer. This is exactly the opposite of that. No, here you go. I yield. Yep, sure. I yield. So Paul's command to us is that we not present, we don't yield. Our members, what does that mean? It just means parts. So brains, hands feet, legs, arms, hearts, parts, members. Don't yield your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Jesus uses the same word, members, kind of famously, and it ties in pretty well. Matthew 5, 29 and 30. This is how Jesus talks about sin. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. Same word. Pretty tied together thought. We'll come back to that though. Don't present your body parts to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. What does that mean? It means you don't go yielding yourself to sin. You don't go looking for those situations and then going, yes, this is what I'm looking for. Let me confess to you guys, this has been working on me this week. It's a tough one. I think we face it all around us kind of more and more. Um, Romans 1, 29. Remember, Paul builds cogent arguments, right? Don't forget that part. This is all building brick by brick on top of where Paul started. Romans 1, 29 through 32 reads, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent, way, they invent ways of doing evil. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. That's a great... Anyway, they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And I would submit to you what I've been struggling with this week is that that's kind of an apt description of our culture. We have more access to the Bible than any culture at any point in history. You want to read it, you can read it any way you want. Really. If you live in the in the Western world. Um, and in fact, the the new project I'm working on, one of the one part of my job is making sure that we're technologically accessible in the third world. And it turns out, you know what the prevailing device is in the third world? It's a smartphone that runs the Android operating system, so not that different from my smartphone. And that's in places where people are super poor and don't have a house. They live in a hut, but they got one of these. A lot of places now. We have basically unfettered access to the greatest things. I mean, to Scripture. We've got unfettered access to knowledge. We ha There's... If you wanted to go out and learn today how to um, how how the timing of a, of an engine works, you can go learn that pretty quick. I mean, you're going to have to build some building blocks. You want to learn how to program a computer? You can learn that today. We have all this access, and instead, we're using it to invent ways of doing evil. Those Paul's words, not mine. It's hard not to read this as an indictment of our culture. We don't just like, culturally, we don't just like evil and malice and ugliness. We love it. There's a... Mixed martial arts is people beating each other up really violently, kind of in such a way that it's not... So boxing has rules... You know, and it's kind of, it's an old man sport because it's got 
a little polite. It's a polite way to punch someone in the face. Mixed martial arts is none of that. Right now there's a character, character, borderline. It feels like, did you ever watch wrestling when you were a kid? I did for like six months before I figured out that it just was not very smart. Um, if Jason were here, he'd be, he'd be scandalized. Uh, wrestling, the characters are fake and you know it. Well, in mixed martial arts right now, the king of the world is a guy named Conor McGregor. Uh, and he is just unfailingly cruel to everybody that he's getting ready to fight. He's foul-tempered, foul-mouthed, says awful, awful things. And you know what he's gotten as a result of that? He's gotten paid. People love him. They can't wait to hear him call people names. Say ugly things about their parents and where they came from. And so instead of saying, no, this isn't okay, we put these things on pedestals. And we do it over and over. That's certainly not the only example. We do it with with sexuality. We do it with money. We let people who are proven buffoons, but who have some money, seem to be important. We do these things over and over again culturally. We don't just have all that sin. We also have a philosophy that requires that we respect all comers. So I can't say to you, no, that's a bad thing that you're doing right there, and it's not okay. Instead, I have to say, oh, well, that's just your way of doing it. Okay. And leave it. And that's prevailing in the culture that surrounds us. And Christians, we can't present our members to sin. And so here's, here's, let me just drill in for me this week. I'm a nerd and I like movies and I like poking around on the internet. Those are two things that I spend some time on. I like movies probably too much. Um, and there are things I would tell you, oh, that just doesn't bother me. Like, oh yeah, if that's it's not that big a deal. It's actually, it's kind of becoming the prevailing thing in, in kind of the cool, sophisticated, uh, postmodern Christian culture to, to say like, well, yeah, that movie is, has some really awful scenes, but you know, it's got a redemptive purpose. Let me tell you about that. Instead of ever saying, no, it's not good. It's just not good for a man to watch that. It's just not good for a believer to ever consume that. We're like, well, that's an awfully strict line to draw. What's funny about this is I grew up in, in and around fundamentalism where they, when my parents went to the mission field, there was a strict policy. Missionaries don't go to movies. Cannot, period. And of course, I was 10 and I was like, movies are really cool. Have you seen Home Alone? It's hilarious. Right? That's all I knew. That is, I wasn't very smart. Um, Although Home Alone is still hilarious, I would argue. But, so we went to the mission field. Missionaries don't go to movies. And then it became, missionaries don't go to movies that are rated worse than PG. And then it became, you know, use your own discretion. And we that's what we've done, right? Now, the fundamentalists that I grew up hanging around were, were railing. Movies are the way that our morality is going to slip. Everything's going to go wrong. We'll lose our grasp on what's good. And at the time, 
because we were cool and sophisticated. We're like, ah, it's probably not going to be that bad. Come on, man. But if you look at the circumstances we're in right now, I start to wonder, as somebody who's really drawn to being cool and sophisticated and saying, well, you know, but this movie's got redemptive qualities to it. Even I start to wonder, man, were, were they wrong? Were they that far wrong? Have, have movies not gotten worse and worse and worse? Has culture not kind of let things slide in a way that 30 years ago, 40 years ago, in polite company, somebody who, who swore a lot was looked down on. It wasn't okay. You don't, you, know, you certainly don't swear around my wife. Heaven forbid. Now they do it in presidential debates. That's how far we've come. It's a challenging thing. So the question I've been struggling with is, am I programming my family to present our members, our brains particularly in this case, to sin through movies? It's a real question for the Christian. Now we're going to land at different places. I'm not going to tell you where you got to land, but I'm going to tell you if you're not engaging that question at all, you're missing Paul's command here. Anyway, sorry. Let me let me get back on track. Um, Paul says believers cannot present their members to sin; ought not to. What should we do instead? And by the way, just let me keep on to that. Um, the internet, as wonderful as it is, and as many avenues as it provides to knowledge and wonderful things, it also provides avenues to terrible, terrible things. And Christian parents ought to be thinking about how their children engage that, and Christian parents also ought to be thinking about how they engage that. And and that, whether that's ten hours a week on Instagram or ten hours a week on dumber stuff. You, you got to be engaging. Like, how how is that working on your heart? Is that a way that sin is dangling passions in front of you so that it can try to be the king of your life? It's a really solid question. What do we do instead? Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So basically, don't let sin weaponize you, right? That's what it's doing. It's letting... When you present your members to sin, to become instruments of unrighteousness, sin, who wants to be the king, now has weapons to use against you. Don't do that. Instead, instead, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So you've got sin trying to be the king. And Paul saying, Christian, you get to choose to whom you present the members of your body. Your brain, your arms, your legs, your heart. And remember, Paul builds cogent arguments, right? All of this tracks all the way back to Romans 1, to everyone being under sin, to the need for a Savior, to Romans 4, where we learned that Abraham was justified by faith, and then we learned that so too were we. It all builds together. You have been brought from death to life. 
We've talked about that these last four weeks. We've been brought from death to life. So now, present the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness. Praise God, that's possible. That's something that you can now do. That's amazing. Verse 14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin doesn't get to be your king. Paul uses the the same word here that he used back in verse 9, talking about death having no power over Jesus. So, let's, let's do a little question and answer. Here's what Romans 6 verse 9 says. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Okay, so you've heard that. Does death have power over Christ? Does death... Let's hear it. Does death have power over Christ? Does sin have power over you, if you know Christ? No. Okay, let's... One more time. Does death have power over Christ? No. If you know Christ, does sin have power over you? No. That's amazing. That is such tremendously outstanding news you aren't under law but under grace if you're united with Christ sin has no power over you I want to submit to you that maybe this is an area of doctrine that we've tended to neglect because it's hard you may be sitting there worrying right now Wait a second. I still sin. Right? I messed up this morning. Um, I was grumpy. I was whatever. I yelled at my kids. I, Sorry, again, that's my list. <clears throat> whatever your list happens to be. Right? I, I still sin. So how does that work? Paul's going to get there. He's got a whole chapter in Romans 7 where he talks about this interchange. It's, it's going to be okay. But today, the foundation he's laying is that if you are in Christ, sin has no power over you. Now, here's what we've done culturally. We've made many sins diseases instead of decisions. And it's true that the way our brain chemistry works, there are many sins that do become Addictive. They fire certain pheromones and chemicals in your brain that cause you to want to do it more. That's how sin works. Um, that's, that's how drunkenness works. That's how a lot of drug addiction works. Um, that's how pornography works. That's just how lots of things work on your brain. Is you do it and you get a, a little bit of brain chemistry that makes you feel really good. Which, by the way, Paul says, sin uses passion to get a hold of you. It feels really good, and then you want to do it again. And then you want to do it again. And if you do it over and over and over again enough, it becomes kind of like methamphetamine or heroin, where you need to do it a little bit more. And then you start to lose your teeth if it's methamphetamine. And then you got to do it a little bit more. you got to do it a little bit more. We've made those things just illness. We've taken away the, the reality that you made decisions that got you there. 
I think here in the church, we need to say to one another, yeah, those, those brain chemicals do work that way, but you are the one who decides to go down that path. Sin has no power over you if you are united to Christ. It's a little weird, too, because, you know, we've been talking about know, believe, reckon, do, right? Know, believe, reckon. You can do those three things and theoretically not see anything from the outside, right? It's all, it's positional, it's in your, it's in your brain, it's decisions, it's belief, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in you if it's true belief. But all of that happens and you don't necessarily see a change until you hit the do part where you don't let sin reign in your mortal body and you instead present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's kind of, that's the external thing. That's the practical thing. So again, Paul transitions here for four verses from here's the doctrine to here's what it means for you. God is not asking you to do something impossible in this passage. This is a part of the sermon where Jason jumps a little bit and pounds. God is not asking you to do something impossible. This is not impossible for the believer. That's amazing. I don't know that I knew that the way that I know it now. God is not asking you to do something impossible. So if you feel like sin is just the king and it's it's impossible to conquer, you've got something wrong with what you believe about sin. Sin is no longer the king. Christ has set you free. Sin is no longer the king. How do you fight sin then? Okay, let's, let's get real practical. How do you fight sin? Um, in his sermon on this passage, John Piper has five suggestions, and rather than acting like I'm a genius, I'm going to let him be a genius, because he is. Strategy one, Christ died for your sins. That's the first step in the battle, is that it's already won. Christ already died for your sins. Romans 3.25 said, God displayed him publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Christ's blood was shed so that God's wrath would be propitiated or satisfied, appeased, taken away. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's strategy number one. If you want to battle sin, strategy number one is to know that Jesus has already conquered sin. Don't ever skip that, right? Paul builds cogent arguments. You can't just... If you just go out today and are like, I'm going to beat sin today, I'm going to do it, it's not enough. It's not you beating sin. It's Jesus beat your sin. Jesus conquered sin. It's so important. Strategy number two is being united with Christ. You died and rose with Christ. That's what's in Romans 6, right? Our old self was crucified with him. We have died with Christ. That's verse 8. The first two strategies for defeating sin in your life happened outside of anything you did. They were the work of Christ. Strategy number three. So having died and risen with Christ, we're now united with him. God did that. How? Through faith. 
This is the application to us of what was accomplished for us on the cross in the life of Jesus. We've become united with him in the likeness of his death. How does this happen? Paul answers that in 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God grafted us into Christ. What was our part? It was faith. Faith in Christ. Looking on what he has done and what he is and what he promises to do and receiving that as a free gift as our receiving that free gift as our treasure in life. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson's a Scottish preacher. You should listen to his sermon on Romans 6, 1 through 14, because it's great. I listened to it about five times. And if you listen to it and think, man, Andrew said a few of those things and didn't credit it, my apologies. He's great. Anything I borrowed, uh, he deserves the credit for, I'm sure. Sinclair Ferguson is a Scot who's taught in America for a while. One day he was walking across uh, across the campus and the president of the school he taught at stopped him and said, Sinclair, have you become an American citizen? And he said, excuse me, what? Have you become an American citizen? And he was just like, kind of, huh? Why? And he said, finally, after the president of the seminary asked him the third time, have you become an American citizen? I realized the only phrase I could reply was, but I'm a Scot. As though, how could I ever? And he went on to be very, uh, very kind about the reality that it's pretty great to be an American citizen. I'm sure I'm not one, so, um, but I'm sure you would all affirm, those of you who are American citizens, it's pretty great to be an American citizen. But when you're born a thing, you feel like you are that thing. What God has done for us is he's adopted us and made us his children. It's not, it's not something that we've got to work up the effort to do. It's just who we are. It's like Will and Arlene have two new kids that weren't born to them, but they are smiths. They don't have to do anything tomorrow to make themselves smiths. They just are smiths, right? They're just, they are. That's what God's done for us. Much more. Adoption's a beautiful picture of that. Love it. Strategy four, God justifies us. So, so far, by the way, of these, of, of we're, we're going to have, I think, five or six strategies by the end of this. The first four are all things that God does, not things that we do. Don't, don't lose track of that. God justifies us by this faith because we are united with Christ. He forgives our sins and imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. So God does it. Just in the same way that God reckoned Christ to be sinful, though he was righteous, so he reckons us to be righteous, though we are sinful. And he does that because we are in Christ. Strategy five is where it does become a command to us. Strategy five is a mental and volitional act. Volitional means will, an act of the will. I choose. That precedes direct engagement with temptation. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So this is back to Jason's sermon last week. Reckon yourself dead 
Count yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to Christ. And again, it's in Christ. It's not, not, it's not you. Finally, number six from our passage today. Say no and choose God. Now comes the direct engagement with temptation. When sin sends deceitful desires to tempt you to present your, your members as weapons of unrighteousness, prefer another ruler. You can't do that on your own. But if you are united in Christ, if you are dead to sin, you can choose to present your members to God. The active engagement of our will comes after and is based on all the other strategies. Everything else in Romans up to this point builds the foundation so that you can say no to sin. It's the only way it's possible. We must say no. When sin, does, when sin attacks with lust, we say no. When it's covetousness, when it's wanting something that doesn't belong to you, we say no. When it's alcohol or nicotine or marijuana or crack, crack cocaine or gluttony, 40 ounces of steak when you need six, we say no. When it's retaliation or gossip or quarreling, we say no. So yeah, that's you. That's your will acting, but it's got to be acting out of the reality of who you are now in Christ, or you have no hope. But in Christ, there is great hope. We have to, in waging this battle against sin, we have to let our desires be reshaped. Because it is easy and natural. It's who we were born as to desire sin. To desire money, food, all those things. But God will reshape your heart because you are no longer under sin. Sin has no power over you. So here's how we'll close. Christian, you are free from sin right now where you sit. You are under grace. Do not present your members to sin. Sin wants to be the king, even now. It doesn't, doesn't know it's dead yet. Um, there are famous battles in many wars that happened after, uh, after a certain side had, had given up because the news just hadn't gotten there yet. That's how sin is. Sin is like one of those battles. The battle's already won, just word hasn't come down from the top yet. So we got to keep on fighting it while we're here. Present yourself to God for righteousness. You are no longer under sin. If you don't know Jesus and you're here, you're a slave to sin. That's rough. It's not a good place to be. Jesus invites you today. His grace is sufficient to conquer your sin, to change your heart. You don't have to be a slave any longer. You're a sinner. Please meet the Savior today. And if you know Jesus, you don't have to sin. 
Now, you might sin tomorrow, and again, Paul's got a whole chapter coming up about the balance between freedom from sin and the bondage we sometimes feel. There's hope for you when you succumb to sin, but the big takeaway this week is that you're already free from sin. You don't have to succumb to sin any longer. You are not beholden. Praise God. That's the natural conclusion to these first 14 verses of Romans 6. All these transactional things that God does on a cosmic stage result in you being free from sin. Don't have to succumb any longer. That's amazing. Praise God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you have changed everything for those who are in Christ. I pray that you would continue to shape our hearts, to draw us closer to the heart of Christ, to help us to realize the truth of our freedom from sin. It's a miracle when people who were slaves don't just get set free, but in fact get adopted into the family of God Almighty. We were slaves to a terrible master, and now we're sons to the King of the universe. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for you are good, you are deserving, you are loving, and you are mighty. We long for your name to be made much of. We want you to receive all the glory, honor, and praise. Thank you for the transformation that you have that you have made in our lives. It's not anything we've done, it's your work. Thank you for the gift of faith. God, I, I pray for your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen. Will you stand with me for the benediction? This is a short one, but one of my favorites. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Go in Christ. Thanks.